0: Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
1: It's Monday, October 15th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
0: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So one of my favorite things to do is to look back into the history of medicine for cool stories of bizarre cases.
0: Is this the Phineas Gage obsession come to life?
1: Yeah. And most of the cases that I talk about or read about are cases of neurological impairments or changes. But this time, I actually interviewed a surgeon uh, to talk about the history of surgery. Now, you probably know that surgery itself did not start out the clean, pristine, Highly respected uh, subfield of, of medicine that it is today.
0: You mean the field that used leeches for decades didn't start out the most respected field in the world?
1: Yeah. Or like in opera, the most famous surgeon is also a barber. <laughs> so, in the, you know, a couple hundred years ago, your surgeon also gave you a good shave. He was also a baker. <laughs> Let's not yeah, let's true. not let's not
0: hate on Sweeney Todd too much. Uh, so, how did it go from this transition of being so malign to being something that is like one of the most lucrative positions, let alone respected positions in medicine? Now,
1: yeah, well, it's a really interesting history. Although I have to say, I wasn't thinking of Sweeney Todd; I was thinking of Figaro. <laughs> that's where you and I differ. <laughs> so that's kind of you know, in some ways. Uh, a reflection, perhaps, of the way that now we monetize medicine because the surgeons are the ones that get paid the most. We sort of see them at that upper echelon. Uh, and and there's, you know, in some people's opinions, the most skill required to become a surgeon because it's this kind of physical skill as opposed to the mental skill of, say, a psychiatrist diagnosing a mental disorder. But surgery also has the ability to cure a patient like many other fields of medicine do not are not quite as as, as you know, final in that way. Um, it's it's often a psychiatrist doesn't cure a patient, they might uh, treat them for, for a long time, uh, you might have some patients that are cured, but a surgeon can just excise a problem and it goes away. So I think that's a part of it. But let me introduce uh, Dr. An- Arnold Vandelaar. He's a laparoscopic surgeon in Amsterdam, very highly respected. Uh, and this is his first book. And we had a really interesting conversation. So let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my conversation with Arnold Vandelaar. Madison Reed, a company named after the daughter of the founder, Amy Errett, is revolutionizing the way women color their hair. For decades, you essentially had two different options to color your hair. You could either buy something at the pharmacy and color your hair at home, or you had to spend money and time in a salon. Amy Errett created Madison Reed because she believes that women deserve better than just those two options. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, but the convenience and affordability of at-home care. It's an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. So you'll look just like you came from the salon, but the reality is is that you had more me time to do what you love. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed, Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. And Reed is spelled R-E-E-D. Arnold van welcome to Inquiring Minds.
2: Well, I'm uh, happy to be uh, in your program.
1: So I want to start a little bit with the history of surgery. Uh, it, it wasn't always quite the uh, revered profession that it is today. Uh, in fact, in in some you know in the medieval times, it seemed like somewhat barbaric um, and also at least from the opera world, uh, you know my my uh, favorite surgeon is Figaro who was also a barber <laughs> and <laughs> did various other things. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of how uh, you know surgery came about and, and sort of how it's evolved.
2: Well actually in, in surgery in in the Middle Ages and before that and, and also a few centuries after that, had nothing to do with the profession that we have now, you know, being a doctor and helping people. Surgery was really like a, a, a craft, like a carpenter would make a, a chair. A surgeon would would cut out um, um, a tumor, for example. And it had nothing more than that. And that's why, uh, yeah, you can really look at it at the same level as a, as a barber. A barber would uh, shave your beard uh, and and why not... Wouldn't they use the same knife to cut out a tumor or to let blood or uh, to stitch a wound? So it was always at that level. And it was also performed by people at that level. So there, there wasn't much science about it. There wasn't much thinking about the consequences of what you did. Uh, and only um, when medicine as a as a whole evolved into a a scientific uh, way of treating people. The surgeons had to follow in that, uh, and that only happened probably in the 19th century when when anesthesia came about and when surgery really became an interesting and and complete um, uh, profession.
1: Yeah, so that was one of the most fascinating things that I read in your book was this sort of, you know, your description of of the beginnings of anesthesia, um, and you start the story with Queen Victoria. Um, so, so tell us that story. I was fascinated to hear about it.
2: Well, the, the Queen Victoria was um, was a lady that that wanted to have a lot of children because she wanted to occupy Europe by by putting daughters and sons uh, in the kingdoms of Europe. Uh, but uh, she also realized that that involved a lot of pain because uh, the delivery of a child uh, in her case was always very painful and was usually followed by a by a postnatal depression we would call that now and uh, it was really getting on her nerves that she had to to go so low as a queen to deliver kids which she described as a, as a animal-like um, um, thing that happened to her so uh, then they came up with the idea why not use use anesthesia that was just uh, used a few years before in in america as a as a way of numbing the patient that that undergoes um, operation so she had um, uh, her delivery of her uh, sixth or seventh child i don't know that uh, specifically uh, under chloroform anesthesia and she was so delighted um on the effect of chloroform that she really started promoting um that it is not bad not to have pain when you deliver or have an operation and that and that then um was picked up by the by the people and by uh, surgeons that yeah that would be the next step and a very wise step to follow to from that point on, then use anesthesia to do operations. But that also meant that the craftsmen the surgeons had to be replaced by surgeons that would uh, operate much neater and much slower because they got the chance of performing a neater operation under anesthesia. So there was a lot of resistance of the old school surgeons against anesthesia. And it really took a queen to use anesthesia to convince the public that it was a good thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, subsequent mothers thereafter <laughs> have given, you know, should should have a little toast to Queen Victoria uh, whenever they do use any kind of painkillers during during childbirth. Um, uh, but. Also, I I really, you know, it never occurred to me that, uh, you know, before then, without anesthesia, of course, the surgeons had to get in and out as quickly as possible because the patients in so much pain and writhing around and moving around. Um, And then, as as you described, there's this change in in craftsmanship. So, um, I want to talk a little bit more about that sort of fundamental change, um, and and sort of how now it's even where anesthesia has become its own specialty um and and you know has its own sort of training protocol and so forth
2: so the the, the preparation for an operation before anesthesia would be that uh, that you wouldn't tell the, the the patient when the operation would happen so it would come as a surprise so you wouldn't be too scared of what was going on and then then five or six very strong men would come into the room and would h- hold you down and then immediately the knife would come out of the pocket of the surgeon and the, and the operation would start it was very quick and fast and very bloody. And, and to cover up the, the blood stains, the surgeons were wearing black coats. Um, and of course, with anesthesia, it's it's the, it's the opposite way. You have to you have to prepare the patient, put the patient down first, then give the anesthesia. That will take a while. So you, you really get the time of preparing on an operation. And during the operation, you have enough time to make decisions on the way to what you are about to do. Uh, and, and you have enough time to, uh, for example, uh, coagulate a blood vessel or close a blood vessel. So it was also not bloody anymore. And to demonstrate that, surgeons started to put away their black coats and were wearing then white coats just to, see, to show that they could do an operation without all that blood loss.
1: I mean, it's amazing. I think of the white coats as, you know, somehow, uh, you know, to, to demonstrate sterility or, you know, to show if there's, you know, any kind of contamination. Um, yeah, it didn't occur to me that it's also kind of the statement of how good a surgeon you are, of how clean your coat is.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's so funny. Of course, now we don't use the white coats anymore because with the, with the heavy light in an operation theater, the, the white really hurts on your eyes. So we now have blue or uh, green coats.
1: Oh, so that's why scrubs are blue or green. It's because of the lighting in the operating room.
2: Yeah, exactly. If you look at at uh, at a white object and then look into the the operation wound, you will you will see a reflection from that. So that's why we use the blue and the green or the green. Yeah,
1: amazing. So once anesthesia was around, uh, also probably the different the types of surgeries that people could do now must have really changed a lot because you could you could get to very specific things, which, you know, before when you're when you've got the writhing patient method um, was a lot harder to sort of be precise. What are some of the techniques that started to come about as a result of of this new technique?
2: Well, actually, with the anesthesia, a whole new profession was born. And I'm amazed that, that they kept the, the name surgery the same, because you really cannot compare what we're doing now with what they were doing then. All they were doing was was uh, amputate a leg or or cut into an arm something like that. But it was not possible to open the abdomen, your stomach, without anesthesia. So once anesthesia came about, a whole new profession of surgeons that could open the abdomen and and start working on a stomach or intestines, uh, the bowels, uh, was possible. Only after that. Uh, that technique started in 1846. So uh, all of a sudden you had stomach surgeons and, and bowel surgeons. And, and after that, the, the vascular surgeons um, uh, came about, you know, the, 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 the arteries and the veins, brain surgery uh, became possible. That, so the whole history of, of uh, surgery before anesthesia was actually very, very small things that they could do. There was no blood vessels involved, no bowels or stomachs or lungs involved. It's not possible without anesthesia.
1: And then, you know, you also talk um, about how the... Kind of just craft of surgery evolved to the point where now now you can have uh, someone who's a much better surgeon uh, because they they sort of you know there's this precision um, and I I really liked the story of of another uh, royal person a king uh, who needed to have or wanted to have um, some surgery and and sort of uh, that kind of surgery had never been done before by the surgeon that he was you know hiring and so that yeah so this so so tell us that story so so what happened
2: well there's there's many kings and queens and celebrities in in the book I think that's the nice thing about the book that that uh, I can I can give an example of an operation or a disease on a person that you can relate to because you know him or her from uh from history but I think you're referring to King louis XIV, who had a little a discomfort on his anus as uh, yes. his, his anal fistula and that's not something you can you you will die from but uh, yeah I have no idea why he really insisted on having surgery on that so he asked the surgeon and the surgeon said well um, I, I never done this before and um, of course in those days uh, without anesthesia and without any knowledge of bacterias doing an operation was also a risk to to die from an operation. And and that's not something the surgeon would do uh, to the king of of France. So he asked the king for um, uh, six months' time to practice the operation on 75 patients before he performed the operation on King Louis XIV. And the operation was successful. And it is said that the surgeon was so happy that he got um, um, a, a good salary for performing that and that the king survived, that he never touched his scalpel again and uh, he never was a surgeon again.
1: Amazing. That, that surprises me as a reaction to success. <laughs>
2: yeah, like he, he was relieved that he didn't have to do the, the, the job <laughs> anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, and I'm sure the, the the stakes were pretty high. I'm sure if it hadn't gone well, Louis the Fourteenth might have performed his own surgery on on the neck of the surgeon.
2: They didn't have the guillotine yet, but uh, of course they had okay. swords to. Uh, yeah, definitely, poor guy, yeah. poor colleague of mine. Yeah, but fortunately, <laughs> and and the the little knife he performed the operation with and the and the instruments are still there. You can see them in the in a in the museum in in Paris, and it is said that they were never used after that. So they really touched King Louis. Uh, the fourteenth, and then never was were used again.
1: Wow, amazing! Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how uh how surgeons train today. Uh, I mean, they probably can't line up a bunch of peasants uh to to work on, but of course you know they have to practice on someone uh because it is a a a sort of physical. It's a motor skill. So so tell us a little bit about how that works now.
2: Well, of course, you have to practice, and there, there's not really a good model uh, that is not human to practice on. You can, you can practice the incision, you know, like cutting open the skin on, on a piece of um, um, synthetic skin, or you can practice on a, on a dead body or on an animal, for example. But if you really want to learn an operation, you have to, you have to scrub in and, and assist another surgeon uh, doing an operation. So, um, yeah, if you want to become a surgeon, you first have to be a doctor. The surgeons are doctors, just like normal doctors are. Uh, and then um, you start working as an assistant with, um, with surgeons. Uh, and maybe little steps you can, then, you can then do for yourself. And the, uh, the surgeon then would take over the, the surgery, the operation. And little by little, it takes about six years. Uh, that way you, you learn how to do an operation and how to, how to be a good surgeon.
1: So in the US, there's this kind of known thing that, you know, the new residents start July the 1st. Uh, so what you don't want is uh, to have to have surgery sometime in the summer. <laughs> um, is that the case uh, in the Netherlands or in Europe? Uh, I mean, do you have these kinds of times in which a whole new crop of potential surgeons uh, starts or or sort of how does that training work?
2: Well, the... the- um, new residents start uh, the 1st of January and the 1st of March and every three months or so. But it's not that if you start that all of a sudden uh, you have to do the operations. So the safety for the patient is always uh, comes first. It's, it's uh, top priority and, and it's not the education of the, of the new surgeons.
1: But but how do they get? I mean, you must you must still have to have a lot of practice, and you know, I, it, it just it just makes me wonder, sort of, how you know, it, do surgeons have to uh, disclose the fact that this is only the fifth time they've replaced a hip, or um, is that up to the patient, or you know, yeah, how does that work?
2: They don't have to disclose it, but but sometimes uh, a patient can ask, and then you have to be honest, and I. I remember when when I started as a surgeon, uh, they would ask to me, well, uh, you know, I'm going to do this operation. There's some risk involved. Uh, Do you agree that we do this? And then the patient would say, yes, but I have one more question. How often did you do the operation? And then I was was always surprised that when I would say like, well, I probably did it three times, the patient would still say like, okay, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) So uh, yeah, even if you did it three times, uh, I think that there's that, still possible to, to have enough experience in your training to do it safely and to build up a, a trust with the, with the patient. But of course, uh, after, after 10 years or 15 years and you did the same operation 500 tri- times, yeah, that is better for the, for the patient because the risk that, that a complication occurs really goes down. Uh, we call that the learning curve of surgeons and operations. It really goes down by the numbers of operations you did.
1: So, what what are the kinds of mistakes that initially surgeons make, but eventually become better at? Is it about you know keeping a steady hand? Is it how you know deeply you make a cut? Is it is it very specific to a, different surgeries?
2: Well, for some operations, like for uh, for example, an inguinal hernia operation, it's really that you have to know what is where. You know, you have to look for structures and then cut the right one and spare the the the, the other one and. Uh, so there is a possibility of making a mistake. And I think if you did six years of, of training, that mistake you will never make again because else you shouldn't start on that operation. But for example, you know, it's, it's, it's judge, You have to judge a situation. There's a little bit of bleeding. Is that too much to, to finish the operation? You have to work on that first to go to the next step. It's, it's small things. And it's always small things that, that can grow into big complications. Like a, a little bleeding can lead to uh, blood loss that eventually can maybe cause a heart infarction, uh, you know, like a, a cardiac uh, infarction. And, and it's like a cascade of little things that follow each other and then it becomes a big complication. Um, so it's more in the in the small things. I don't think um, uh, big complications occur from big mistakes. That's not how it works. Yeah. And you need a lot of experience um to be certain for yourself that that uh, situation is safe and that you can continue with the operation in that way. And then you have to of, of course you shouldn't be too proud if, if you're not sure and you're you're a young surgeon. why not ask your colleague to come and help you or, or do an operation uh, with two surgeons? That always helps for safety.
1: As you mentioned, the sort of more experience you have doing a particular operation um, will make you more skilled. But on the other hand, it will also make you further away from the latest innovation because it's been, you know, that much longer since you started the training. And I recognize that you know physicians have to go through continuing medical um, education. But you know, are you seeing a trend now in the use of um, sort of you know robots or or other kind of uh, technical tools that are changing the way surgery is is happening? Or is it still, you know, pretty much you, you know, the surgery you've been doing for, you know, ten or fifteen years is is still pretty much the same.
2: No, you have to realize, and and I'm surprised that you that you say that you have to realize that that a big part of our job is actually uh, education. We have to we have to be on top of the the the, the novelties and the, the new developments in our field. Uh, it's not possible to do the same operation for ten years the same way you did the. Uh, you, you you visit conferences, you, you look at how other uh, colleagues do. You, you read your scientific papers, uh, your journals. Uh, and you have to be up to date and, and it's not possible to do the same operation that you did 10 years ago the same way. It's, it's, it's always evolving in, in bettering yourself and following the, the, the new developments.
1: That's encouraging to hear.
2: Yes, but it's but it's <laughs> definitely so. It's, it would not be very good if that uh, if that would not be so. So else you would say the, the older the surgeon, the older the operation. But that's definitely not the case. It shouldn't be the case. No.
1: So I do want to talk a, a, about a couple of your famous cases. Uh, so I want to start with um, Albert Einstein and uh, sort of you know the story of his surgery. Uh, and, and, and why you think that he, he lived longer than he should have.
2: Yeah, well, Albert Einstein had an aneurysm of his um, uh, great blood vessel in his stomach, in his uh, abdomen, uh, aortic aneurysm. And that is uh, something like, you know, like a, a, a balloon that's under pressure that can pop any moment. And if that happens, you die within a few hours. Uh, so uh, that's, a, that's a bad situation. And what we then want to do is, is make sure that, uh, that the blood vessel is restored. Nowadays, we do that by uh, putting in a stent, for example, or replacing the blood vessel by a, a prosth- prosthesis. But when um, Albert Einstein visited his surgeon, which was Rudolf Nissen in New York, uh, he didn't have that possibility yet. That, that wasn't invented yet. So uh, also there was no CAT scan possible, and ultrasound, it all didn't exist. So he just offered an operation just to make a diagnosis, you know, like I'm going to open your abdomen and then see what's wrong. And So he did and he found that uh, Albert Einstein had this aneurysm and he did a very experimental treatment, which now we can really laugh about. He wrapped the major blood vessel of Professor Einstein in cellophane paper. It's the same material that, that they used to wrap uh, sandwiches uh, in, for example. And um, yeah, there was some, some thoughts that if you, if you do that, that would induce uh, development of scar tissue and that would make the blood vessels stronger. Now we know that that is not really a good technique, but still it helped Albert Einstein because he lived for many more years after that operation. Uh, which is a kind of uh, yeah a, a miracle because it was a very serious dangerous situation in his abdomen.
1: And and another sort of where well, I should say a famous American case is is the surgeon who operated both on JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald. So tell us that story.
2: That's uh, Doctor Perry in, in Dallas. He was a, he was a young surgeon by the way. It was just he, he just had finished his. Uh, his training and he was on call on the on the um, emergency room in the parkland hospital uh, in november uh, 1963 when kennedy was shot so he got kennedy as his patient on the emergency room Um, and then i read that it was the same perry that got uh, lee harvey Oswald on the emergency room and then i realized it's it's just he was on call for the whole week. He was a young surgeon. They would say, "Well, you're you're going to do the, the the on calls," um, and I would say, "If you have uh, if if you lose the president of your country as as a patient, I would ask for a few days off, you know, to 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 get it off my mind." And and I would ask my colleagues, "Can you please take over my on calls?" But but he didn't, and he was still on call when Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, entered the emergency room and he also lost that patient so
1: I mean you know that's the the interesting thing too is this is this question of being on call that that you know doctors work these long shifts and you know especially when it comes to surgery I mean I understand the operation takes a long time but you know there also seems to be you know the, the this this call schedule where people stay on call longer than the surgery so you know, what do you think about that? And especially what we now know about the importance of sleep in terms of concentration and attention and cognitive function.
2: Well, there are rules that, that you shouldn't be on call too long uh, without sleep. Uh, definitely, that's also the case in the, in the United States, but at least here in Holland, I know those rules. So uh, it, it, it shouldn't be a dangerous situation. And if I have an operation that takes all night, I'm definitely not going to do the operations of the day, but my colleague will take over. So uh, it, it should uh, be safe. But there's, there's two things that I personally don't like uh, about being on call. First of all, if nothing happens in the hospital and they don't call me, I still can't sleep because then I think, well, how come they don't call? What's wrong? Uh, the, is my telephone working? I'm, I'm not at ease for the whole uh, on call. Well, that's not a nice feeling. The second thing is you never know what is going uh, to be on your plate uh, uh, when you're on call, it's, you have no idea what kind of patients will will visit um, uh, the hospital. So you have no choice in in what you will do that night and what not.
1: So, so yeah. So and and so that probably applies mainly to people who are, uh, you know, who are in emergency situations, right? So you know, this isn't elective surgery that you can put on the calendar. Um, this is something that happens unexpectedly. So is yeah, is there like a different rate of success for those kinds of surgeries or a different bar in terms of, you know, it you know, it's sort of more acceptable to make more mistakes under those conditions?
2: No, you should not make more mistakes. The the number of mistakes you should make in an operation is zero and that's on, on in every operation. But um yeah, if an an, an acute patient has a more severe disease uh, and that's comes with higher risks of complications.
1: I also want to talk about something that I was surprised to read about in your book. I mean, of, of, uh, of a book about surgery, the last thing I thought that I would read about is the placebo effect, uh, because I understand the placebo effect is strong in the rest of medicine. But you'd think that if you're actually doing surgery, that, you know, there's there's something very tangible that you are changing about the body. But tell us a little bit about the role of the placebo effect, even in surgery.
2: Well, the the placebo effect is, of course, uh, the the patient thinks that he gets a treatment. And because of that, the treatment works, although it is not a treatment. And we know about the placebo effect that that it is stronger when the patient believes that it works. And we also know that it is stronger when the person that gives the treatment believes that it works. And it is also stronger when there's more drama around it. So if you look at surgery, uh, if you do an operation it's quite a drama you know you have to be under anesthesia it, it involves a knife and a scar and a, and pain and and all kind of things it's much more dramatic than just taking a pill or drinking a, 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 a liquid or getting a, a injection and then you have operations that Patients really believe, you know, like that's the last thing that can help me. And you have also surgeons that believe that, well, I am the only person with my operation that can help you. And that is a, is a cocktail that's a mix that's really ready for placebo effect. So uh, I think from every operation we do, there's, there's, a, there's a grade of placebo effects. And by now, we also know that some operations are actually only placebo effects. Uh, for example, this, this operation on the inner ear done on, on astronaut Alan Shepard uh, in, in my book, it was an operation done so he could fly to the moon uh, without having uh, problems with his, with his uh, balance. And that went fine. He went to the moon and came back and uh, no problem. But now we know that the operation he got is actually not effective, but the effect is only a placebo effect. And uh, yeah, once you know that, you should stop doing those operations because because every operation, even if it has an effect, uh, involves uh, risks. So we shouldn't do that. But at that time when that astronaut got the operation, that wasn't known yet.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. So there are there are other surgeries, of course, that we don't do anymore. Uh, and you know, I'm I have a background in opera. Uh, and I was, you know, always very interested in in sort of the the castration surgery uh, in order to preserve the voice uh, of a of a male. Um, so so tell us a little bit about that, and sort of obviously we don't do it anymore for ethical reasons.
2: Yeah, castration it's it's a very simple operation. It's been done through the whole history of of mankind. Um, um, there's an example in the Bible, there's examples in, in China where the, the, the emperor would surround himself by, by castrated men. Uh, in, in Byzantine, the emperors had, had eunuchs, uh, castrated men serving them. Um, and the side effect of castrating a, a young boy is that his voice won't break and, and that can then give the, the castrate voice, the soprano uh, voice. And uh, yeah, there's the, probably uh, thousands of kids being castrated by their parents because they hoped that, that they would become famous with their voice. But of course, it's not only the castration that, that makes a good voice, you also have to be a good singer. So, yeah, it's a dramatic chapter in the history of, uh, of surgery, in the history of mankind.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the, the, uh, the description of those voices is that they were just like no other because they had the strength of the male, uh, you know, larynx and, and physique, uh, but with that, the, the sort of range of a soprano, of a female. And
2: It was very um, popular in, in Italy. Of course, the, the Italian opera uh, has a lot of soprano uh, parts. Uh, But then when Italy became independent, they also said uh, it's not uh, allowed anymore to to perform castrations just for that purpose. But uh, Vatican City was not part of Italy. So in the Vatican City, uh, in in Rome, um, uh, young boys were still allowed to be castrated. And actually the last castrated soprano man uh, that was still alive, he was also, that was in, in Rome, in the Vatican City, he was also recorded on, uh, on a gramophone record. So if you want to listen to that, it's still recorded. There's, there's one guy with that voice that you can listen to. It's really strange.
1: So in the few minutes uh, that we have left, first, I want to remind our listeners that uh, Dr. Vondelaar's book Under the Knife, The History of Surgery and 28 Remarkable Operations, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, And I want to talk to you a little bit about sort of the future of surgery and and what you see the role of automation might be. Um, are, Are there techniques that you think really should be performed by, you know, uh, robots that are, you know, controlled by humans, but still, you know, like for example, um, microscopic surgeries that you know you just physically, you know, you, you you use a kind of tiny robot, but with a magnifying glass, so you can see what you're doing. Um, or, or do you think, you know, what do you think is is are some of the you know ways in which uh, uh, artificial intelligence or or robots will will change surgery in the future?
2: Well, well, robots already exist in surgery. But uh, I'm not certain if we should really call them robots. It's robots in surgery are like robots building cars. Uh, they exactly perform what a person tells the machine to do. So then a robot is a tool to uh, perform an operation more precisely or, or to reach a, a specific spot in the, in, the, in the body that you can't reach with your hands. And that's, of course, um, yeah, very helpful. But um, you shouldn't think that the robots that are being developed are something like, you know, like self-driving cars, the, the car that, that doesn't need a driver. It isn't like that. We're not uh, going in that direction. Uh, we cannot let a robot lose on uh, doing an operation. And that has to do with, I think, recognizing the structures Um, um, it's very small and and precise in a body. You have to use your eyes and your fingers to feel and um, the contrast between the colors, you know, inside of a body, everything is between yellow and red. There's nothing green or blue. So it's hard to recognize. And also the, the visualization of the inside of the body now done by CAT scan and MRI is still not that precise to feed that into a robot to perform an operation. So I think it's still much safer that a person, that a, that a surgeon mm-hmm. performs the operation and he uses a robot as a tool. And I think um, when robots starts operating, like for example, in Star Wars uh, is the case, where the, the hand of Luke Skywalker is, is fixed by a, by a self-operating robot, I don't see that in the near future. Uh, and maybe there's also not a need for that. It's, uh, I would say a patient would trust a, a, a person to make the decision during the operation better than a robot with artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I think there are other aspects, you know, parts of medicine where sort of brute search force, you know, looking at previous cases, um, you know, things that 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 artificial intelligence is very good at, uh, you know, where where sort of the role of the human doctor might, might become more secondary. Uh, But it sounds like if you are going into medical school, and you want to ensure longevity in your career, uh, surgery is a good way to go.
2: I didn't say that because I also think that a lot of things we do as surgeons is now taking over by medication and by other techniques done by radiologists. So the need for surgery is is becoming less and less. Oh really? Definitely. Uh, A vascular surgeon, you know, like uh, I was talking about Albert Einstein. Uh, 10 years ago, that operation would, would involve a big operation where you put in an artificial piece of, of artery uh, in somebody's body. Nowadays, we don't do it with an operation anymore, but we, we make a puncture in the, in the groin and then, and then push in a stent. That is not an operation anymore. So, a whole part of, of a whole section of our job is slowly taken over by non surgical techniques. I think it's more going that way. That's called minimal invasive surgery or minimal invasive treatments. Um, I think it's more going in that way than that you should think that robots would take over operations. All right, well, I, I take it back then. Yeah, <laughs> maybe in 200 years, a surgeon is not necessary anymore. That would be good.
1: They'll go b- get back to being barbers because hair continues to grow.
2: Exactly, and <laughs> then we don't need to be on call.
1: Great, right. Arnold van Lard, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds.
2: Well, thank you very much for the interview.
0: So I heard you talking about Einstein and, and that surgery, but I didn't hear you bring up something. So uh, listeners will not know this. This is a, one of those things that's a behind the scenes thing. Indre has a microscope that has been sitting in her office for a long time that may or may not have a little bit of Einstein brain left over on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, hope, hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> um, I hope I've cleaned it well enough since then. But yes, uh, my neuroanatomy professor at UCLA was the late, great Dr. Arnie Scheibel. And he was also one of the people who was able to investigate Einstein's brain uh, and, and figure out whether there was something that we could see. Uh, in slices of Einstein brain that would help us understand why he was so brilliant. Now, actually, I disagree with a lot of Dr. Scheibel's findings (laughs) concerning the Einstein brain. Um, And it's possible that, oh, yeah, so why do I have his microscope? Well, when he was cleaning out his lab after after his retirement, uh, he actually let us uh, graduate students go in there and take anything we liked. I swear that's totally true. Uh, And I took the microscope.
0: I think that was a good call in (laughs) retrospect. Uh, So all this discussion about surgeries... Uh, the future is really the interesting part because, you know, I, I've gone to like different festivals and fairs where they'll have like the Da Vinci surgical robot out and about. And I wonder uh, if really the precision that robots are going to bring are... Me- Make a lot of the stories we hear just an artifact of the past.
1: yeah, I mean every time I talk to a surgeon, my brother being one, but Dr. Vandalar being another, uh, you know they they really uh, are, are not not willing to admit that robots are in any way a, a threat in terms of making putting them out of business. you're always going to need a surgeon who's going to have to be there behind the robot, and the robots are just a tool. Um, but I have to agree with you i mean if if you could outsource something as you know complex and and sort of sensitive as surgery to something that doesn't make mistakes, uh, then in some ways, I'm actually comfortable having a robot do the surgical procedure more so perhaps than a fallible human.
0: So weirdly, I agree with you. Like I, I have been very much on the side of humanity lately. Like in, in the interview last week with um, Hannah Fry, I was, I was talking about how I, I want human judges still. <laughs> I don't want robot judges because I, I want sort of uh, our mistakes. But not in surgery. I don't want any of those things. And I get that it's still a little science fiction—the idea that you could go into a scanner and it, it identify the spot, and then like roll into surgery and a robot, you know, with a some sort of laser device, like somehow uh, cuts into you and does it perfectly. But humans have fatigue. We hear about these eighteen-hour surgeries still. Uh, I would, I would put a lot of faith in the. In the robots having much more control of that process. Now our health system won't allow that to be without a certain, sur- like a human surgeon in the room. But I'm with you. I'm totally on board for that future.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's going to make the surgeon's role more secondary, or if Dr. Vandalar is correct in saying that you know throughout the history of surgery, surgeons have always been required to, you know, use new tools. So they're constantly relearning. They're constantly reeducating themselves. And that's just a part of the job. Uh, And he's right on that. So it's possible that in the future, uh, we're just going to have surgeons that are just better skilled at using the robots. And that's the job rather than using their hands. But, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I agree with you. My brother recently had a surgery in which, you know, it was it was so intense that he had to change clothes like three times. And, you know, it just seems like that kind of, you know, physical intensity, if you can just like sit behind a you know, like like a computer and just have the computer program do it. That seems. Let's like get it would some moisture
0: wicking clothes for surgeons. <laughs> Come on, we can do better than that.
1: All right, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. So, we'd also like to thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer awald Kyle Rahella, Joel, Jonathan Woodsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson you can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds inquiring minds you can also get an ad-free version of this show right there find us on twitter at inquiring show and facebook and you can send us comments feedback future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show
0: inquiring minds is produced by adam isaac our music is provided by award-winning producer rian
1: and we're your hosts i'm andrea viscontis
0: And I'm Kishore Hari. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.